grateful for it.
Good morning. Good morning. All right, we want to welcome you to Parkside Bible Fellowship. We're very glad you're here in the midst of all this 2020 stuff. This is a joy to be back together and to be able to fellowship with one another. And so we're... That was unprompted. So So, as we uh, come together, we have a couple of, of housekeeping things. One is... If you're not receiving our Thursday updates as to what's going on within the body, we ask you to just drop off your email. You can find our email in here very easily and just send it to us, and then we have yours. Uh, Go by the Welcome Center if this is one of your first times here. Go by and get a packet, and it's got all the info in it, or better yet, ask questions and we can get you info regarding all the ministries. few things are adjusted, but a lot of things are becoming more or like old routine, I don't know, the, the new normal. And so if you can grab your bulletin, uh, nursery is resuming during the worship service. Yay, that's a great thing. And we're getting back together for a time of fellowship with a picnic in the park in October. It's that change of seasons. It'll be sweatshirts and not 104 degrees, and so we hope. But uh, it'll be October 4th. Details are to come. But uh, plan and have that day marked off because that will be a great time. And then the ladies are having their day. They're having a bingo night, so that ought to be a real howl. So that ought to be a good one. And so ladies, keep track of that. That's coming up on October 16th. Sunday school classes resumed today. I can give you an update on ours over in the fellowship hall with Woody. It was fantastic, and we greatly enjoyed that. We, uh, it's been six months, almost to the day, since we had our last Sunday school class. And so that was great. Brennan, your class, all good? In the new... The new classroom worked okay? All right, glad to hear that too. And uh, so then we have a couple other updates, Wednesday evening prayer, and Awana's back in in session. And so great stuff, and uh, thank you for adapting, and thank you for being here. Monty, thank you also. Appreciate it. By the way, for those that got caught with that uh, bingo mention, um, there's no gambling going on here. (laughs) Would you, with that as an, as an opening, please stand and let's, uh, let's carry on with our worship service now. And I'd like to just draw your attention to God's word. So uh, let's be still and hear his word. Psalm 9. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy 
came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. A stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for this day and for your blessings. And we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that your word calls us to praise you. And thank you, Lord, that you reign and you sit on your throne and nothing has changed. You are forever the same. You are faithful. And you will not forsake your own. Dear Lord, help us to lift up praise to your name and give you thanks. You've been so good to us. Even in the midst of a storm that we're facing, uh, we thank you that you reign supremely, that you are our refuge. We ask for your blessing as we sing and as we pray and as we receive the, the proclamation of your word. Be glorified in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Behold our God, see 
Please be seated. Good morning, everyone. 
Hope you're off uh, to a good start. Um, today we have a couple of things I know that Monty already announced, but just to make sure that everyone knows, in case you maybe came in a little late or maybe you thought you could get a little pre-service nap in. Uh, just a reminder, again, Sunday school started back up. It's a great opportunity uh, to get some more teaching in, as you heard already, that Woody's over there in the fellowship hall and, and uh, Brennan's over in the new classroom, uh, which from now on is called the conference room because it can't be the new classroom forever. You know, at some point, we can't just call it the classroom. So Rochelle, I think, uh, coined conference room. That's what we're going with. Okay. Uh, also, Awana's uh, started back up. Uh, it's a little bit different this year. Uh, it's alternating by last name, so uh, if you want more information on that, you can check the bulletin. Uh, I have a new thing to announce. So we're going to be starting up a new group specifically for men who are fathers uh, with children still in the home. We're going to be going through a book that's called uh, Family Shepherds, Calling and Equipping Men to Lead Their Homes. Uh, the purpose of this is to, to really hone in uh, to see what the Bible says in terms of uh, our role and responsibility as, as fathers. You know, it's a high calling. It's an important calling. And uh, if you're interested in going through this book together with, with other like-minded, like-minded men, uh, I'd encourage you to stop by. I'm going to be out on the table in the foyer, 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 depends if you're French or not, uh, to, to do sign-ups. And if you have any questions about it, uh, encourage you to please check it out if you're interested. Um, yeah, date's important. So we're going to be starting up October 23rd. We're going to be doing it at 7 p.m. and we're going to be alternating weeks. Uh, so every second and fourth Friday and we're going to be meeting in the conference room. Uh, so again, if you have questions, uh, see me after church. Also, uh, for our prayer time uh, today, uh, we want to be specifically praying for Sam Wickheiser. He's got a surgery coming up on Tuesday in Carson. Uh, we want to pray that uh, he, he has a mass on his, on his kidney that they would be able to freeze it instead of having to uh, remove his kidney. So obviously it's something that we want to be uh, praying for as, as well as others who have uh, health needs in our body. So with that, let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you, Lord. Um, thank you, Lord, that we have a hope that you will reign forever, God. We're so blessed by that song, Lord, that we have a hope and a promise, Lord, that you're, you're, you're doing your good work here and now, Lord. We pray that in your grace you would uh, use um, the teaching of your word this morning. We pray that in your grace you would use uh, the Sunday school classes that we have, that you would use... Uh, Awana in children's church that you would use all these things by your grace to uh, equip the body that you would equip us to do the work of uh, the ministry Lord that you would help us to be gospel ministers to those uh, around us that we would have a firm understanding of what the gospel is Lord the the hope uh, that we have in Christ and pray also for your grace for this uh, this group for fathers Lord that you would use that time to equip men to lead their families. We pray that you would help us as a congregation, Lord, that you would uh, not only help men to lead their families, that you would help uh, women in their role, that you would help 
uh, children to honor and obey their parents. Lord, that uh, in the family, Lord, that you would do your gracious work, that you would build your body from from the very core of, of the family that you have given us, Lord. We pray also for Sam. God, pray for uh, this upcoming appointment on Tuesday, that uh, that they would be able to, to freeze this mass, Lord, that they wouldn't have to remove his kidney. And pray that you would give the doctors wisdom, that you would give them the ability to do this. And pray for, for Sam and pray for uh, Pam as well, Lord, that you would give them peace, that you would comfort them, that they would fix their hope on you, your grace and your goodness and your sovereignty over all things, Lord. And pray that you would be glorified, uh, Lord, that uh, in, in healing uh, and uh, what's going on with Sam's kidney. And uh, we pray for the rest of our day today. We pray that you would help us to uh, focus in on, on the word that's going to be taught, that we would be built up, and that, we'd be, that we would be edified, Lord. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Stephen. Just another uh, reminder, um, and if, especially if you're visiting here, we're not expecting you to be a part of uh, our giving here. We are glad that you're here as our, as our visitors, as our guests. But for you that are here on a regular basis, just a reminder again that you can give in the box in between the doors or in the, uh, the love offering plate that's in the foyer. 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 Um, and again, this is something that, you know, we don't push, but we want to we push this. Thank you. Thank you for your faithful giving. To God be the glory in that, right? That's good. The Bible tells us that Jesus is, in Colossians chapter 1, He is before all things. And in Him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And there is only one one fount as we're going to sing in this next song where blood flowed through for the remission of your sins and we give him thanks and praise for what seems totally backwards that someone would die so that you could live forever and be right made right with God let's stand together and sing
Children, uh, preschool through second grade can be dismissed for children's church. Well, thank you for being with us today. It's uh, good to be together. I'm not a giant fan of having every other row taped off, but one result is we have people in the front row. (laughs) So I'll take what I can get. Uh, Open your Bible to Romans chapter 9, and we will continue working through that passage. Romans chapter 9, and uh, we're just going to focus on 19, 20, and 21 this morning, but in preparation for that, I want to read uh, verses that come before as well to set the stage for what we're talking about. So I'm going to start reading for us in verse 14 of Romans chapter 9. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then... He has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, 
Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we come before you this morning. And we confess right off the bat that we have not loved you with all of our capacity as we ought. Nor have we loved our neighbor as ourselves as we ought. And so we confess that sin to you and we find forgiveness in Christ. We rejoice that in him that sin and all of our sins who are in Christ have been paid for that we have right standing before you not because we've been good but because of what Christ has done. And we ask this morning Father that you would Be honored in our time as we open your word and as we talk about clay and potters and mercy and hardening. As we talk about your will, we ask, Father, that you would teach us from your word this morning. We ask that you would be at work in our hearts. And so we pray for that blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Augustine of Hippo famously said, The Bible is shallow enough for a child not to drown, yet deep enough for an elephant to swim. And today's passage will take us into the deep end of that pool for sure. Some people act as though the really deep end of the pool, the really deep end of the Bible is irrelevant for normal Christians. And some even think that the Christians who spend time thinking about and, and living in, being in the deep end of the biblical pool are actually making themselves irrelevant They're actually wasting their time. They're answering questions that no one's really asking and and that don't really matter in the end for the average person anyway. Maybe theologians, maybe people who want to write books, but not the rest of us. Well, one of my hopes today is to dispel that myth and want to do so from Romans chapter 9. When I was working with youth, I started doing a thing that I called Stump the Chump. That may not have been the greatest title for it, but uh, the the kids liked the title, and so I ran with it. But I would let them ask whatever question they wanted to ask. They could, uh, I didn't guide them. I didn't, if they were quiet, I sat there quietly waiting for them to come up with a question. And we would talk about dating, and we would talk about other religions. We would talk about some stuff that was not a big deal and some stuff that was a big deal. But almost every time, 
the questions the students had, when I wasn't guiding them, the questions they had would end up in the deep end of the pool. They would end up asking questions about God's sovereignty and man's will. How those things relate together. And so I I want to challenge the notion that it's a waste of time, that no one's really asking those questions, that it's not really important. Because if you give a teenager opportunity, if you put a few of them together and let them ask questions, you'll end up there in about 30 minutes on those topics because those questions are important to them and they know it. And so those questions are important to us as well. We want to address those. They arise naturally when people think about what they believe. And by the way, these are the same questions. These hard questions that are deep end of the pool kind of questions are the same questions that other religions do not want their people to ask. They are forbidden questions. They're almost bad questions. You don't ask them because they're dangerous. It's risky to think about those sorts of things. Well, one of the things that I encourage my children with and one of the things I encourage anyone I get a chance to talk to about the Bible is you can ask the hard questions. The Bible has the answers. Now, you may not like the answers the Bible has, but the Bible has the true answer from God on these topics. And so we need not to be afraid to ask those hard questions. We need to wrestle with them in reality. Too many Christians think the same way. They, they think that you're going to get into trouble by asking those taboo questions. The Bible can handle those questions In response to the very bold statement that Paul made there in verse 18 where he said, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You can see that's a deep into the pool kind of question. That's, that's not an easy one to deal with. And, and Paul, who has been working through Romans chapter 9 all the way from the beginning of, or from the end of chapter 8, starting this topic, he's been, he's been addressing very deep and, and sometimes painful issues, hard to wrestle with. And as he's doing so, he's bringing up objections. Now, Paul's been preaching a long time. He has been in ministry a long time, and he knows that certain things he, he will say are going to raise certain objections. And so he brings those objections to the front. And we started off looking at, uh, looking at one a couple of weeks ago from verse 14 and following. What, what shall we say? Well, he, he hits on at the end of that paragraph a very strong statement where he says that God will mercy whomever he will and he will harden whomever he will. That's God's prerogative. Well, that's a strong statement. And so in light of that, he knows there's going to be an objection raised. And so he raises that in our passage today. And it may very well be that your own heart raises the same objection. Having read what Paul said in those previous verses, maybe in your heart also, you ask the the, the questions, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? The objection is that's unfair. That's unfair. And I want to notice just in passing so I can impress Simi Travis, my English teacher, that uh, um, this is a, a couple of figures of speech. There's actually one figure of speech used twice. It's a rhetorical question. The answer is assumed. Why does he still find fault? What's the assumed answer? He should not find fault. 
It's a rhetorical question, the thrust of which is he shouldn't find fault because no one can resist his will. And so we have this, uh, these objections being raised. The first one is that God should not fault us. God should not fault us. If God is the one who's ultimately making the decisions of who will receive mercy and who will receive hardening, doesn't that mean that God is punishing people for his decision? Sounds unfair. If he's really sovereign in that way, he should not locate fault in us, but he should see the source in himself, right? That's the objection. Aren't we actually just running the route that God gave us? Aren't we pawns on the chessboard? So the first aspect of the objection is God should not fault us. And the second one, what's more, God's will is irresistible. God is too big and he's too strong. He's over all things. He's all powerful. And he and, by by the way, the objector, the one raising this objection, and Paul agree on that. He is all powerful. He is over all things. They agree on that aspect. The objection is that Paul, what Paul is saying is that God exerts his will in this specific area. That's the problem. Not that God is sovereign in general. If you ask any Christian, if you ask anyone who believes in God, they will say, yeah, God's sovereign. And then they will define it in a very particular way. And the problem, the objection being raised is, Paul, you've defined it in this area. He should not be sovereign in this specific area, in the area of giving or withholding mercy. He's saying God shouldn't interfere in that area. God shouldn't exercise his sovereignty, his power, his control in that area of to whom he will show mercy or hardening. Shouldn't that decision, after all, be left up to the person? That's the nature of the objection. Paul has just said it is not left up to the person. Look at verse 16. I read it earlier. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Paul has made a very strong statement that no, it is not left up to the person. The decision is not theirs. It's not for the one who wills or the one who runs. It's God's decision. And so, Paul, aren't you saying, by arguing that way, that God runs roughshod over the will of man? God just tramples it. He's running over it. That's, That's at the heart of the objection that... This objector, this opponent, this interlocutor is raising. Here's the heart of the objection simplified. Since God's will is irresistible, God would be wrong to punish the wicked because of uh, who, because of God's will, do not receive mercy. He would be wrong to punish the wicked who didn't receive mercy. And the reason they didn't receive mercy is because it was God's will that they not receive mercy. That, Paul would be wrong. Since that would be unfair of God, Paul, your argument must be false. Either your argument is false or your gospel is false. That's the nature of the objection. 
Now, keeping that objection in mind, before we, before we answer that objection, before we see what Paul says here on the topic, we need to answer whether God's will is indeed irresistible. The objection was God's will is irresistible. Who can resist his will? It's a, it's a question that, that gives you the answer already. No one resists his will. So that raises the question for us about God's will of command and decree. His will of command and decree. And I'll explain exactly what I mean by those two words, command and decree. We often read about God's will in Scripture. It's all over. When I was a new Christian, God's will was very important to me. That was one of the new things that I thought, wow, I, I now care about what the God of all things wants me to do. That's new. I couldn't have cared less, you know, the day before. Now I cared. I thought about God's will and we read about God's will in Romans 12 and verse 2, for example, where we read, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The will of God is something we want to know. It's something we want to discern. Sometimes it's relatively easy to discern what it is. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. This is the will of God. Well, excellent. He tells you what it is. You don't have to go searching. You don't have to go divine it some way. You don't have to figure it out. He says, this is the will of God, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. All right, God's will is clear and plain and simple. It's on the page. It's right there in front of us. Likewise, in Psalm 143 and verse 10, teach me to do your will for you are my God. The believer has a desire to do God's will and God tells us what that will is, how to obey him, what it means to walk in obedience to him, for example, abstaining from sexual immorality and other things he says very clearly. And so God's will here is God's prescription for our behavior. He tells us what he wants us to do, how he wants us to live. And so I have a question for you. Is that will always accomplished? Not in my life. Not in your life. Certainly not in the world. That will is not always accomplished. So when our objector says, who can resist his will? Well, apparently I can and you can and everyone else can. It's clear from these verses just these verses alone, that we don't always do God's will in that sense. However, we also read Ephesians 1.11 that says God works all things according to the counsel of His will. In that verse, God's will always prevails. His will is always done. And it kind of sounds like today's passage, who can resist His will? Well, in Ephesians 1.11, no one ever can resist God's will. He works all things according to the counsel of His will. So there's a sense in Scripture that God's will is unbreakable. It is irresistible. God says in Isaiah 46.10, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Who will stand in God's way to accomplish His purpose? Nobody and no thing will stand in God's way. 
He will accomplish all His purpose. So there is a sense in Scripture in which God's will can be resisted. For example, the Ten Commandments. That's an expression of God's will. And yet, those Ten Commandments are broken every moment of every day in this world, often by Christians. There's a sense in which His will is broken all the time. How are we to understand these two concepts together? Well, I'll start with a test case. We, we saw that in some ways God's will is unbreakable. It will be accomplished. And in other cases, God's will is broken every day. For example, is murder against God's will? According to the Ten Commandments and everywhere else in Scripture, yes. It's against God's will to commit murder. He, you know, you shall not murder, right? All right, so with that idea in mind, this is God's will that we not murder. And yet we read in Acts chapter 4 and verse 26 through 28 talking about the crucifixion of Christ. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples, peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Speaking to God. So here you have a situation where it's against God's will. It's against His explicit command to murder someone. And there were a bunch of people gathered together in Jerusalem to murder Jesus, and they murdered Him. And that was exactly according to what God's hand and His plan had predestined to take place. It was God's will. Or Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, speaking on the same topic. Peter preaching says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So in one and the same instance, Herod and everyone gathered with him, Pontius Pilate and all those, they were breaking God's will by committing murder. And yet, in that same instance, it was God's will that Jesus be murdered. According to Acts 2 and Acts chapter 4. And so, how do we understand that? How are we to understand those two things together? We, we can't just ignore them. We have to deal with, look at how those two things work together. There can be God's will that no one commit murder, and it can be God's will that Jesus be murdered. Well, I'm going to try and explain that in the next few minutes, try and lay out how we understand how those two things can be true at the same time. So, what we need to see is that in Scripture, we see that God's will is discussed in different ways. God only has one will, but it is discussed in different ways. And the first way it's discussed, we might call the will of command. The will of command, or some people call it the will of precept. Or His revealed will. He has told us how He wants us to behave. This is what God commands. This is what God prohibits that people do. 
It's his revealed will. It's his will of command. It's the duty that God assigns to men. And this is what Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 14 is speaking of when it says, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. God has told you what he wants you to do. He has laid it out. He has made explicit. He has given you the command. The will of command or the will of precept or the revealed will. It's God's will. It's his revealed will. It's his command. And so clearly you and I know that in this sense, that will can be violated because we ourselves have violated it. But there is another sense, though, in which the will of God is never violated. And we might call this his will of decree or sometimes his secret will. This is what Paul was referring to in Ephesians 1.11 when he said that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things according to the counsel of his will. There's no errant thought. There's no there's nothing out, uh, operating outside of his will in this sense. And this will is inviolable, irresistible. It will be accomplished because he will accomplish it. But where his will of command is plain to us from reading his word, the will of decree is not given to us. It's not as plain for us to understand it. In fact, the psalmist speaks of this will in Psalm 36 and verse 6 when he says, your judgments are like the great deep. In other words, unfathomable. Unfathomable. I can't reach the bottom. Or what Paul says in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 and 34, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. That doesn't just mean God is really smart. His judgments are unsearchable. They are inscrutable. They are unfathomable. They are not clear to me. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Another rhetorical question. No one has known the mind of the Lord. This, this second aspect is the aspect of God's will that Paul's objector refers to when he says, who can resist God's will? The answer is no one. No one. God will accomplish what he is going to accomplish. The will of command is often resisted, but God's will of decree is never resisted. What God has determined to happen is what will happen. So I wanted to lay out those two concepts of God's will for you. I want you to have them clear in your mind that it is one will, and yet it's talked about in two different ways. We we understand from Scripture two different things about it. So in this passage, in chapter 9, the objector is saying, God will do what God will do. His will is irresistible. And so it will help us to understand those two categories, particularly uh, as we continue on through these difficult verses and chapters in Romans chapter 9 and 10 and 11 and in other places. And so we have the will of command, 
the revealed will and we have the will of decree or what is not revealed until it happens. And when it happens, it is exactly, precisely what God wanted to happen. His will is irresistible. Back to our passage, chapter 9, back to dealing with this objection. So we have the objection given there in verse 19 in those two rhetorical questions. Why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Almost as as important as what Paul says in response to this question is what Paul does not say in response to this objection. He doesn't say, no, you, you got me wrong. You got me wrong. You misunderstood me. You misunderstood what I was saying. We actually can resist his will. God doesn't really harden whomever he wills. He doesn't really mercy whomever he wills. Paul doesn't say, God hardens those who want to be hardened. And he shows mercy to those who want to be shown mercy. In fact, Paul doesn't say anything at all about faith or behavior, whether actual, present, past, or foreseen. He doesn't address that at all. Instead, he says that God's will is ultimate and decisive. And this is precisely what has given rise to the objector's complaint. So let's see how Paul deals with it. First of all, we have the audacity of clay. But who are you, verse 20, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Now, I mentioned before when I did an overview of of chapter 9 that the, the word order here in the original makes it clear he's emphasizing, oh, man, you man, are, are, you, are you answering back to God? Remember, I gave the example of, you know, small child. This is how you talk to your dad. Young man, you're going to talk to me that way. He's he's calling out who we are, who the objector is, the the distinction. Man is distinguished from God. Oh, man, let's just think for a minute about your resume. Let's just think for a minute about who you are, about your identity, about your accomplishments, about how, just how great and wise you are. Let's call that out on on the table first. Oh man. And so there is a great distinction made between God and man. This is the same distinction that Paul made back in chapter one of Romans when he was pointing out the very clear distinction between God, who is the creator of all things and man whom he has created to worship him. And what does man do in his rebellion? He stops worshiping the creator. I mean, who needs that? And instead he worships the creature. You see the distinction? It's not just that he was worshiping this thing and then he went to worship this thing that was slightly less glorious. He was worshiping the creator of all things, but he rejected that and decided to worship the creature. The creature. And so there is a very strong distinction that we need to hold in our minds between God and man. We need to keep in mind that God is distinctly other from us. So first, he says, oh, man. 
young man, small child, who you are, man, human, creature. He calls that to mind, first of all, and he says, who are you to answer back to God? Man talks back to God. We have an instance here in this objection where man is talking back to God. I, I was in the, uh, you know, I grew up here in Fallon. I went to fifth grade, and many of you re- remember uh, Mr. Cunningham, fifth grade teacher, and he was, uh, he was desired by a lot of parents, and, and a lot of kids were scared of him. So I, I had him, and uh, he was a great teacher. And I remember one day, I don't have any idea what the question was, but he called, he asked a question, and I, I, he called on me to answer it, and I didn't understand what he had said or something. I don't know. But I said, huh? And I just didn't understand the words that came out of his mouth. And he got a funny look on his face, and he called me up front. And so now I'm standing in the middle of this classroom, you know, and I was about that tall. And, uh, and Mr. Cunningham, he says, are you mocking me? I didn't know what the word mocking meant. I said, huh? <laughs> so he got a hold of my ear. You could do that back in 1984. Got a hold of my ear and was lifting me up like this. He said, are you mocking me? I didn't know what that meant. I said, huh? And so it was a bad situation, right? He thought I was talking back to him. Well, I, I, my parents raised me better than that. I didn't dare talk back to anyone uh, my entire life. But, uh, but he thought I was. Students shouldn't talk back to their teachers. Children shouldn't talk back to their parents. And here we have clay talking back to the potter. We have man talking back to God. And so even just with the first words there, Paul is, Paul is rebuking the objector a little bit. Now, he's not, he's not rebuking the question. He's going to deal with the question. He's going to deal with the objection. He's rebuking the tone with which that objection is usually accompanied. There, there's usually a sense of calling God onto the carpet when, when this objection is made, as if, as if we get to do that, as if man gets to question God, which is kind of what happens here. Man questions God. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Man questions God. Man calls God to account for what he has done or what he expects as if our standard of morality were the standard and God has to measure up to it. As if if we know what is right and good and true... And God better get in line. This is man questioning God. This is, this is man calling God to task for this. Now, this is part of the objection. But Paul has a specific point here. And this is a, this is a point of application for us. When we are trying to figure out what we believe... What, what, what we are to believe about God. When we're having discussion about it, it turns out we don't always agree on what we believe and it, and it leads to discussion. And some, but one of the ways that that is often resolved when I have a position and someone else has another position is that one of us will say, but that would mean... And then, and then there are consequences in our minds. 
you hold this position, I hold this position. If your position were true, that would mean this. That, wouldn't that mean this other thing? And so since I don't want that other thing, since that other thing is wrong, and this must mean that, I reject that position and I'm going to go my way, believing what I believed for. That's the, but that would mean argument. I'm sure there's a better word term for it, but I don't know what it is. But it's the, that would mean, and that's what the objector is doing here. Paul, wait, wait a minute. That would mean God is unjust because who could resist his will? Therefore, Paul, your argument is false. Your argument is wrong. You see how he's argued from his own reason. He's argued from the logical connections that he has made, but that would, you said this, Paul, but that would mean this. And therefore, since this is clearly untrue, I reject the whole thing. There's another way to go about that discussion. There's a more biblical way to go about that discussion, and that's what Paul has been doing. He has been arguing from Scripture, and he will continue to argue from Scripture as he continues. And this is the better way to go about that. Rather than the two positions being, uh, being held out and one saying, but, the, but your position would mean this, and since that's bad, I reject the position. We see what position the Bible teaches. We argue from Scripture what position the Bible teaches on this topic. And then, after we've seen what the Bible teaches on that topic, then we can say, but there are certain consequences to this. How am I to understand these consequences? You see how that second method puts Scripture first. That second method allows us and our reason and our sensibilities to be taught by God. The first one puts my reason, my sensibilities in judgment over what therefore must be true about God. You see the the distinction between the two? That's part of the tone that Paul is correcting here when he says, who are you, O man? Answer back to God. You see, we might learn a thing or two from God that's different from what we think already. I say that very facetiously. When we go to God's word, he corrects our thinking because his thinking is correct and ours is warped and sinful. I have my own thoughts and preferences. I have my own proclivities. I have my own ways of reading things. I have my own blind spots. We all do. And God's word speaks to us what is true, what is absolutely true. And our responsibility, Christian, is to learn from God what is absolutely true And then, once we've learned it, say, okay, now what does that mean? And once you go through the process that way, you will find that the conclusions you come to are not necessarily the conclusions you came to right off the bat when you said, but that would mean. You see, God wants to retrain our minds. He is true, and He wants to teach us truth. And that's part of what Paul is doing here. He's not... He's not rebuking the person saying, well, you asked too hard a question. Don't do that. That's not what he's saying at all. He's going to answer the the question. He's going to answer the objection. But he insists upon going about it in a biblical way. We are not governed primarily by our reason. Reason is not our authority. I'm all for being reasonable. And I hope I reason consistently. But I need to reason from Scripture to life. I do not reason from my life about Scripture. You see the difference? 
We need to reason from this outwards. So, we have the audacity of clay. And, and when you put it in those terms, it just becomes, I really don't enjoy being on the receiving end of that, that, that I'm, I'm clay calling God to account. Secondly, or thirdly, we have the right of the potter. Look at verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another vessel, vessel for dishonorable use? The, the potter has rights over the clay, over what he's going to do with the clay. And the first thing I want to notice here is man's origin is identical. There's one lump. It's not various lumps that came from various parts of the world and have, have different, uh, you know, chemical makeups and probably you people who understand about, you know, geology or whatever, you know. That, that, that's not what it is. This is one lump. It's been kneaded together. It's been worked. It is one lump. And the potter grabs a handful to make a thing. And he grabs a handful to make a different thing. It's the same lump. The consistency is the same. The, the makeup is the same. Well, what does that have to do with us? Well, of course, humanity is the lump. Humanity is that lump. And not just humanity. Sinful, rebellious humanity is that lump. And so he's saying the potter, who is God, sees the lump, all of humanity, and he takes from the lump and he makes one vessel for honorable use. He takes one lump or one piece of that sinful lump the, the, the piece he took is equally sinful, has the same composition. It's exactly, you could stick it back in that lump and mash it around. It's exactly the same. He took that and he fashioned it into something honorable, like a vase, something beautiful. And then he stuck his hand in and he grabbed another lump. It's exactly the same as that one and this one. There's nothing, there's no distinguishing characteristic as if this one has no sin or this one has a different chemical composition or anything else. It's identical. And he fashions with it a a chamber pot, something for dishonorable use. Was that the potter's right? Well, of course, when we put it in those terms, that's the potter's right. He gets to do that. I remember uh, being on a missions trip. When I was at his hill, we went on a missions trip to Mexico. And it was uh, a lot of things about it were very impactful. And one of the things I remember doing is going to the workshop of a potter. And this was all being translated for us and, and whatever. But he had, he had just bowls. Like he made all, I don't know, as I remember, it's all the same bowl everywhere. <laughs> he probably, you know, had, had more than one thing he could do. But, but it was bowls everywhere. And some of them were, you know, some of them were like, uh, you know, up on the shelf and for sale. They had dust on them. They'd been there so long. They'd, they'd been fired and, and, and they, you know, they were glazed and all. They were beautiful. And then he had others that were at various stages of, of preparation. And I remember very clearly the potter you know, he, he had the, 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 the lump there and he's saying, is that completed? Is it, is it done? Is, or, or does there, can there be more done to that? Well, of course there could be more done to that. Well, then he took, you know, he went over to the wheel and there's a clump on the wheel and can there be more done? Of course there could be more done. Is it finished? No, it's not finished. Well, then he goes to one that he has, he has already done whatever they do and made it into a bowl. It's, it's malleable. It's still wet. It's moist. It's soft. Is it finished yet? Well, it looks finished. It's got the right shape. But no, it's not finished. There's more that, that can be done. 
right? And so then he showed us one that, that had been, you know, uh, I, I'm forgetting the process. I remember this years ago and I don't remember it now. Anyway, I, it had been fired once, I believe, if this is the process, I could be wrong. It had been fired once. So now it had its, its shape, its rigid shape. You couldn't change it anymore. And, and he's saying, well, now is it done? Well, no, it's not done. And there's, there are more things that could be done. And he said, yeah, I'll show you that, it, that it's not done. And he took it and dropped it on the floor and shattered everywhere. And I thought, oh, well, that's, a, that's a good picture. It wasn't done and whatever. Well, then he, he pulls one out that had come out of the kiln the second time and it had been glazed and, and everything. It was beautiful. He says, it, now, now is it done? Now can, can anything else be done to it or is it finished? Is, there, is, is this the final product? And then he dropped it. And we were all like, oh, no. What was his point? Well, the potter gets to do that. The potter gets to do that. And the potter could probably take that and grind it up. And I don't know, I've already said more than I know about pottery or whatnot. You could probably reuse that in some capacity, right? So that's the potter's choice. If he didn't like it or if he, you know, decided, hey, I've got, you know, a thousand of these things. I don't need to make another one. I'll start with doing something else. The potter has the right to do that. And that is the situation with us. We are called the clay in this picture. And we come from one lump of tainted sinful clay and that is us and from that lump the potter chooses to make some for honorable use and he chooses to make others for dishonorable use you see man's use is determined by god just like the clay's use is determined by the potter hey i want to make a chamber pot and i want to make a bowl to eat vegetables out of he gets to do that same lump and he gets to do that and likewise paul is saying here Man's use is determined by God. But you say, that, that's arbitrary. It sure sounds arbitrary. Well, if by arbitrary you mean random, then no, it's not arbitrary. If, if by arbitrary you mean without any reasoning or judgment behind it, I say no, it's not arbitrary. God doesn't do random. God doesn't do anything without judgment. He doesn't do it, do anything without his own reasons. So no, in that sense, it is not arbitrary. But there's another definition of the word arbitrary. And this one I would agree with. The definition, a better definition of the word arbitrary is that the, the reason or the distinction is not made in the object being decided about. The reason or the distinction is made Within the decider, the person rendering the judgment has his reasons. They're not located in the object being decided about, but within the person making the decision. Well, in that sense, yes, it's, it's arbitrary because we can't look and see. We look at the lump and we see that it's sinful. It's been kneaded. It's been, you know, everything. It's, it's, a, it's a sinful tainted lump of clay. And when he grabs one and he starts to do something, we can't discern by looking at the clay what, all, what, what, what he's going to do in the least. We can't discern. There's nothing within this lump of clay that made him do a particular thing versus this lump of clay that made him do something different. The decision was in his mind what he wanted to do. Something important for us to keep in mind throughout this discussion is man relative to God. Man relative to God. You see, the, 
the, the lump of clay is tainted. It's sinful. Mankind is sinful. We talked earlier about, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the difference between justice and mercy and how those things relate together. Is, is, can, can mercy be demanded? Then it's not mercy. Can mercy be earned? It's not mercy, if you can earn it. It's not mercy. Mercy is freely given because of the desire of the person giving the mercy. And so when God looks at this sinful, tainted lump of humanity, does he owe mercy to that? No. He could could render judgment to that and he would be in the right. But he decides to render mercy. He decides to show mercy where he will show mercy. God takes some for his own reasons. For reasons, it's it's not that there are no reasons. They're just not found in us. Reasons are found in him. And he takes one piece of the lump for his own reasons and he fashions it into something for honorable use. And he takes another one and he fashions it for, into something for dishonorable use. What we need to remember in this situation is not only that we are clay, we are the creation and he is the creator. He's the potter. He has that right over us. But Worse than that, we are tainted creation. We are sinful. And so God is taking a sinful lump of this and working mercy to fashion a vessel for honorable use. And then he's taking another tainted, sinful piece of that lump and he is giving it its due, treating it as a sinful lump. Deserving of God's wrath. And this, this brings us to our conclusion today. I know that doesn't solve all the problems. It doesn't answer all your questions. And we're going to continue on through our passage. But frankly, we don't have enough time to do the whole paragraph in one day. But what I want to think about, what I want to draw our attention to at this point, is the mercy of God that he would look at a... a and it's not just like it's tainted and over there and we could just close the door on it and not not interact with it or whatever. We are openly rebellious against God as humanity. Sinful against Him. We, 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 humanity, sinful humanity strives at every turn to throw off the yoke of God. They're, they're happy to worship God as long as they can shape Him in their image and worship a God that's actually an extension of their own preferences and desires, an extension of them. They're actually worshiping themselves. They're happy to do that or worship some other form of God, but the true and living God, the one who actually made them, the sinful man is in rebellion against him. They don't want to submit to him. They don't want to hear from him. They don't want to know about him. They hate everything that looks like him. That's the lump. It's not just a lump that, oh, I put a little, you know, I, I, I put uh, some food coloring in it, and now it's the wrong color. No, no. This is, this is a lump that, that if it could would kill the potter. In that context, with that situation, with the potter who is righteous and good and he's got this rebellious lump of clay that just hates him, rebels against him at every turn, in that context, the potter reaches in and grabs some. How how did he do that? Well, God looking at the world, sinful world, 
that rejected him, hated him, stood against him, sent his son. Born as a little baby boy. Born as one of them, one of us. He sent him into that context, into that tainted lump of clay, tainted, rebellious, murderous lump of clay, sent his son there. And Jesus lived in that context, but he wasn't tainted. He was always obedient to the Father. He honored God in the midst of that context. And what happened? The world around him hated him for it. You look like the Creator. And they killed him. But of course, was that God's will? Well, it was against the commands of God to murder, and yet it was exactly God's will. The very moment when it looked like it was the darkest, the worst possible, that the lump of clay had eaten the sun. I know I'm mixing all kinds of metaphors here. I'm sorry. I can't keep up with him anymore. (laughs) The lump of clay had eaten him. It looked like it was all over. It looked like defeat for the Creator. It looked like defeat for the Son. At that exact moment, the, the, the worst breaking of God's will in the history of humanity, in the killing of the Son, and yet that was precisely God's will, having victory for that lump piece of that lump that he pulled out and fashioned into a vessel for honorable use. That Jesus would would bear the hatred and the wrath of the world. It was their hatred and their wrath for God and he was standing there and he bore it. It was directed at him. He bore it and he did so for the purpose of bearing sin and judgment from God on that cross even dying so that when he was raised from the dead, he might fashion vessels for honorable use. So the fact that God would not just take that murderous lump of clay and destroy it, which was his right, and he has the ability, but instead sacrificially redeem portions of it is mercy. And that's the mercy that I proclaim to you today. The mercy that is found in Christ. That when we believe in Him, when we trust in Him, when we look and see, I'm a part of that lump and I deserve judgment. But Jesus bore judgment from God. When we look to Him and we trust in Him and we say that, I have to have Him. We find that He bore our sins we find that that God takes us and begins to fashion us, fashions us into a vessel for honorable use. And Christian, you know this as well as I do, but we can always use to be reminded. We were that lump. With the same taint that should have brought judgment. And that's not what he gave us. Instead, he sent his son into that lump. And from that, because of Christ, fashioned us into a vessel that he gets to use for honorable use. And you and I, as Christians, get to be that vessel for honorable use. We, we have this salvation not because of anything we had done, because we are that lump. 
but because of the mercy of the potter. And his decision, when he grabbed a lump, a piece of that lump of clay and began to fashion it, we didn't know what was going to be fashioned. And there was nothing within any piece of that that would, that would cause him to make something wonderful. And yet he made something wonderful. That's the mercy of God. And that's, that's what causes us to praise him, to, to glorify him, to worship him because of that mercy that he has shown us. And, and understanding that, understanding this image that Paul uses here helps us not to call God on the carpet, not to hold God to our standard. It causes us to recalibrate our standard to God's standard. It helps us to understand who God is according to God's word and what this salvation is according to God's word. And it is glorious. The mercy of God on our behalf as shown to us by the potter. Let's pray. Father, this is indeed the deep end of the pool. I don't know of many deeper or harder questions or questions that hit closer to home about our own uh, value, our own worth, our own strength, ability. I pray, Father, that you would be at work in us, even this week, that we would ponder these things that we've heard from your word and we would submit to you. We rejoice in the work of the potter. We know that there was nothing resident within us, any good work, any, anything that we could have done or would have done to merit him fashioning us into something honorable. We thank you, our potter that you have done so. And Father, I pray that you would help us to be the messengers of the mercy of God in Christ to our families, our co-workers, to each other, lest we forget, to people around us. And we pray that you would grab another handful, that you would fashion more vessels for honorable use. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. There will be a family up here who would love to pray with you. Otherwise, God bless you all and you are dismissed.